0: all right well we are this morning in the book of Ruth so I'm going to give you some time you are probably have to go to your table of contents to find that one uh, this is not a book of the Bible that is taught on often uh, it is an Old Testament book but a beautiful book that has so many incredible things for us to learn about the Lord God as does all of the word of the Lord but when we go to the Old Testament Uh, we have to understand what we're doing, where we're going here, because the book of Ruth was written well over 3,000 years ago, and life was not basically like it is now. Life was very different 3,000 years ago than it is now, and so we have to take into, into the picture here the context of old history, but what has not changed is the Lord God and the nature of human beings. And so you'll see there's much to learn about what was happening back then and much for us to see what God is doing. But one of the things that I love about the book of Ruth, it is a story about ordinary people living quiet, everyday lives. And so what happens in the book of Ruth is not about grandiose people doing amazing things, but people living out their lives every day. And we learn here that God is mindful, purposeful, and directly active in the lives of these people as they live to accomplish his will for a much greater purpose than they could ever imagine. And so we'll get to that by the end of the sermon today a little bit about what the Lord is trying to accomplish here. So I would ask for you if you found it to stand and we're going to read and we're going to honor the Lord as we that's why we stand in the church to honor the Lord as we read his word and I'm going to read the entirety of Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there, and Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Mahalon and Chilion died so that the the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10. And they said to her, No one will return. No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Okay, so context for our story, because this is a story. This is a narrative story, characters in it, and we need to learn the characters and the context of those characters. It says in the beginning, In the days when the judges ruled, the day of the judges. So this story is in the context of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is just previous to this uh, in the Bible. And it's important for us to grasp a little bit of Bible history uh, as far as where we are in the flow of history in the Bible. If we pick up with Abraham and God's calling of Abraham saying, I am calling you and I am going to make of you a great nation. And that there are going to be a chosen people that come from you, the nation of Israel. And until the coming of Christ to be a follower of the Lord God meant to come into this people and believe their God and walk in their ways. And so from Abraham, the Lord... Fulfills his word, and we have Joseph, who is one of his sons, and goes to Egypt. And from that, the the family ends up moving to Egypt and growing into a great nation and being enslaved in the country of Egypt, still waiting a promised land, a place where the Lord has promised that this nation would set down their roots. Well, eventually, Moses comes onto the scene and is used of the Lord to deliver the people from Egypt out of slavery and into this promised land, but you have a generation that's hard hearted and doesn't believe and won't go in, and so they're disciplined in the desert, until that whole generation dies off and the Lord raises up a, a generation that is believing after that generation. And they go in, led by Joshua into the promised land, and they take hold of the land promised to them by God, which is now the nation of Israel, the same nation that is known today as the Israelites, the same area, same place. And so, in between uh, that and where we are now is is judges. So after Joshua comes a period where the people settle into the land, and I want to read to you from the book of Judges, chapter two, an important uh, verse. Let's see, Judges two six through ten. Judges two six through ten. When Joshua, who was by the way the right hand man of Moses, when Joshua dismissed the people of Israel. Each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of a 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnathers in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generations that were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation, and after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It's a sobering statement. So what happened is Joshua led the people in, and the elders that were around him led and taught the people, and for all that generation, things went well as they reminded the people of the works of the Lord, and they had a a personal relationship with God but there came a time not too many generations after that where that generation died off and they did not transfer to their children their faith or the works of the Lord and there came a generation that did not know what the Lord had done and did not believe in the works of the Lord and the people forsook the ways of God and it ends up with the book of judges which if you have read it it is a book of chaos and violence and fear and idolatry and sexual sin and if you want to just turn one page back from where you are in Ruth It has the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If every one of us in here just decided to do whatever we thought was right, we're not going to agree with each other, and we're going to be fighting against each other, and there's going to be all kinds of chaos, and that's what we find in the book of Judges. And in the midst of that context, in the midst of the book of Judges is where this story about Ruth occurs. And the book of Judges reminds me, it reminds me of of our day and age, to be honest with you. I think we're moving in that direction. A generation of people that do not know the Lord, that they have not directly experienced the work of the Lord. They have forgotten who God is, and they have a relationship that they've heard about God through their grandmother or through their grandfather, but for them, God means nothing personally. And we see through that an increasing amount of strife and chaos in our culture, But what I wanna encourage you with is that this story happens during that type of a situation. The Lord never stops working. He is continuing to work out his ways no matter what may be going on around us and we should take heart in that. Well, the basic situation that we have before us is brief. Uh, The whole story is pretty much told in five verses, and there's not a whole lot of details. And I think it's important when we're looking at Bible history and the Old Testament that we not try to speculate too much in filling in the gaps. The Lord gives us what he wants us to know in order to teach what he is trying to teach. And so what is being taught here is very clear. That you had a family that was starving. There was a famine in the land of Israel. And famine back then was not like Oh, I don't get to eat what I want, like they're out of the, 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 the brand that I really like. Famine equals we're starving to death, and we've got to go move and live somewhere else so we don't all die. And the family is Elimelech, the husband, Naomi, the wife, and they have two sons, Mehalon and Chilion. And so they move because of famine to Moab, where they can find something to eat and live. And there, uh, Elimelech dies, and Naomi as a widow with two sons. And these two sons marry, we're not told which son marries which woman, but they marry and there's Orpah and Ruth. And then the two sons die, and you're left with three widows and the sad tragedy that that is. But it's important to point out that you have two Israelite men or sons marrying two Moabite women. If you know much about the Old Testament, that should raise a red flag for you. Hey, this is a problem here, because the people of Israel were not supposed to marry foreign women because it would, it would cause a problem with the faith. This is what happened to uh, Solomon, most clearly talked about. He was a man who married many foreign women, and it diluted his faith and corrupted the entire nation. And so in Deuteronomy 23, 3, it talks about specifically Moabites and Ammonites, that they're not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And so what do we have going on here? How should we see this? How should we understand this? I think the best uh, single statement I read on this this past week was from a guy named A.S. Herbert. He says God's salvation, worship, and revelation must be kept pure from contamination and delusion uh, delusion of paganism, but it is available for all, even a Moabite. So let me unpack that. What does that mean? God's salvation, his worship and his revelation. What it means to worship the Lord, to understand how he is saving and what it is that God has re- who it is that God has revealed himself to be must be kept pure from contamination, which means adding to it or from delusion, which is to take away from it. We have the exact same um, concern and command given to us at the very end of the Bible in the last chapter of Revelation, that we should still be very concerned in our day and age of adding to or taking away from the faith because the way that the Lord has revealed himself to us is right and perfect, perfect meaning we don't need to add anything to it or take anything away from it, it's right the way that it is. And so the way that the Lord guarded this in the Old Testament was for the people of Israel to, to guard this faith and this practice. And so to become a follower of the Lord God in the Old Testament, you came into the nation of Israel and became one of the people of God. There's a great transition in the New Testament where when the church is developed and Jesus Christ comes and what it means to be a follower of the Lord God is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We no longer become Israelites to become followers of God, but all peoples of the world become followers of Jesus Christ. That's a story for another day. But part of the way in which God has not changed is that the salvation of God was always available and open to all people, but they could not have it on their own terms, just like now we cannot have the salvation of God on our own terms. And so for Ruth to become a follower of Yahweh, the Lord God, she had to come into Israel. She had to follow the faith of her mother-in-law and put away the gods of the Moabites and follow after the Lord God. And that's what we're gonna see happen in this story. So the conversion of Ruth comes through Naomi, her mother-in-law. She accepts Yahweh, the God of the Jews, as her God. And we're gonna see that very clearly expressed as this story is told. But it's a story of tragedy. If, you've, if you listened while we were reading or you've read it before, there's a lot of weeping, a lot of sadness, and a lot of brokenness, and a lot of sense that God is against me in this passage. Because we have three widows that are impoverished, that are starving, all their husbands have died, and they're in a foreign land. Okay, this is a bad, bad situation all the way around. In desperation, Naomi is going back alone to the town of her origin that she has not been from for a long time, seeking food. And so my question for you this morning, I'm going to ask a number of questions today. But one is, what is going on in the circumstances of your life? When you look at this situation, you may see much of something going on in your life? Are you in the midst of great struggle, tragedy, and loss? Because this is a big part of the application of this passage, is for people that are in a broken and desperate situation. Do you believe, like Naomi, as she says in verse 13, that the hand of the Lord is against you? Sometimes you come to a place in life where you cannot understand what is going on and you feel like God must be against me in this situation because things have gone so terribly wrong. Your life has become bitter and full of weeping and sadness and there is no end in sight. You cannot see how this is going to work out and no comforting words matter because you are living in the midst of this struggle and this hardship. One of the great applications of this story is that you are not alone. The Bible has much to say about suffering and hardship. And I think this is one of the applications of the verse where it talks about there is no temptation except that which is common unto man. And you may not think that suffering is a temptation, but suffering is a temptation. It's a temptation to shake your fist at God, to hate God, to curse God, to walk away in depression and many other things that can come upon us when we come into very hard situations. But you are not alone. Suffering is something that has been a part of the lives of God's people forever because sin is in the world and the world is a fallen place. You are either in suffering or it is soon to come, or it has been in your past. For some people, great suffering is early on in their life. Others, life starts out with a bang, and everything is fantastic, and somewhere around midlife, it just falls to pieces. And others, they make it all the way to the end, and there, in the final chapter of their life, comes the great hardship or suffering. But I can tell you, it is coming. And there is much to learn about the faithfulness of God in this story. And so I want to start with three basic things that Naomi does here in not giving up in this time of hardship and struggle. So three basic applications that Naomi does not do. The first thing that Naomi does not do is she does not give up and lie down in depression and self-pity, okay? I understand depression is a very real thing. I deal with it in my own life from time to time. And I understand, and I am not minimizing the reality of depression, but depression can be absolutely immobilizing where you lay down and you quit and you give up. And if anybody ever had a reason or an excuse to lay down and give up and quit, it was this poor woman in the situation of her life. But I want you to see as we go forward and the actions that are taken in this book by faith that she does not lay down and give up. Second, she does not contemplate suicide. I don't want to minimize this. Suicide is a very real thing in our day, and there's a great temptation to kill oneself in this day, when there's no answer, and everybody you ask can't give you an answer, nobody knows what to tell you, that the enemy will come and whisper in your ear that perhaps it's better that you just killed yourself and ended all of this, because there is no purpose, there is no meaning. I'm telling you that this is a lie. And Naomi pushes away from this, all the sadness that overcomes her heart. She does not give in to it, and she does not contemplate suicide. Thirdly, she does not hate God or lose faith. She struggles. She's, you can just see struggle all over this passage, just weeping, and I don't know, God's against me. But she doesn't hate God. And she doesn't give up her faith in God. She does not give up seeking after God and walking in the ways that she knows she should walk in. So she does not lie down in depression, she does not contemplate suicide, and she does not hate God. Instead, her perspective is basically the same as what we see in the book of Job, chapter 1. I referenced this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to read the the, the passage this morning. It's Job 1, 20 through 22. This is after God has allowed all of Job's family to be killed, everything, he was very wealthy, everything he had was lost, and he finds himself just there by himself in his wife, who was not much of a help, whose advice to him was curse God and die. This is what Job says in verse 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I believe we see the same thing with Naomi. She does not sin. She does not charge God with wrong. She does not shake her fist in anger at God, but she keeps going. And so verses 6 and 7 we see the the, the change of circumstance. And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She'd heard the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way towards the land of Judah. They're on the road. They're going. They're going going to try to change circumstances. We're going to go to somewhere that we think is better. We're going to try something. And here we go. And she wants her daughters-in-law to stay behind. And i Do believe, this is an earnest plea, uh, that she just feels like it's best if these daughters-in-law stay in this land. They're they're young enough to find husbands, to remarry, and she wants them to stay there. But what I want you to see is the way in which she blesses them in verse 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She is seeking a blessing for them using the name of the Lord. Now this is an important translational note, an important thing for you to understand from the Bible. When you see in your Bible capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the translation that most English uh, Bibles use for the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. And so there's a long, there's much to learn about that name, but that the original root of that, we go back to Moses at the burning bush where God says, I am who I am. It's a, it's a version of the, of the verb to be. But the Jewish people were very, very serious about the sacredness of the name of God and not wanting to even speak the name of God because of the sacred nature of it. And so they shortened it down to four consonants, Y, H, W, H, that's an English version of Hebrew. But um, that is the personal name of God for the Jewish people. There's another, when you see in the Old Testament, just God, capital G-O-D. That's the translation of Elohim, or the general name of God. This is a lot to learn here. It's very interesting. If you care, go to the front pages of your Bible, especially if you have an English Standard Version, to the, the preface that you've never read and passed by a thousand times, and there's a section in there called Translation of Special Terms really interesting uh, to see what is going on there, but it matters. And so why it matters here is that Naomi has not forsaken the Lord. She has lived 10 years in a foreign land that worships a foreign God. Shemash was the foreign idol that they worshiped in Moab, and not a whole lot is known about Shamash, other than they definitely worshiped him because there's this big stone called the Moabite stone where they talk about praying to this God for wars and the way they fought against Israel and all these types of things. But it appears that it's very similar to the Ammonite God right next to them which was Molech the God who was worshiped by offering child sacrifice and it was an abomination to the Lord. And so even though Naomi had lived in a foreign land for 10 years, she had not forsaken the Lord, not forgotten the Lord, and is blessing her daughters-in-law in the name of Yahweh the Lord, that God might deal kindly with them as they go out, and that he might grant them to find rest. Following these blessings, it all turns to weeping again. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept at the end of verse 9. In 10 through 13, she talks about trying to persuade them to turn back because she cannot provide or help them find a husband. And this is, again, one of these historical questions because she may say, what's the big deal? Why why, why all this big deal about husbands? Why don't they just go find a job and, and, and work it out? Well, that's not how it was ancient, long time ago, thousands and thousands of years ago. A widowed woman did not have a way to go and provide for herself. And so, a lifetime of widowhood, especially as a young woman, equaled a lifetime of poverty and desperation. And the, the one thing that often women turned to in that time was prostitution, and that's just a terrible, terrible thought. So the seeking of a husband was a mercy from the Lord and a way for them to be provided for. And this is what Naomi is trying to help them do. And she feels like them following her is not going to be good for them. And there's no future there, that there's no point in them continuing with her because there is no future with her because God is against her. In verse 13b, she speaks out this, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, that for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Exceedingly bitter for me, the hand of God has gone out against me. And so because of this, Orpah, in weeping and in love for Naomi, says, I am going to go away. And she walks away, and she goes back to her people, and as it says, back to her gods, and so we don't see in her the same change of heart as we see in Ruth. But we also have no sense from this passage that she is blamed for doing this. She was justified in doing this. The same desperation moves both women. It moves Orpah to leave, to go to seek to be a wife, and it moves Ruth to go and stay with Naomi and to be a daughter. But we see a beautiful thing at the end of verse 14. It says that Ruth clings to Naomi. That's not a normal word. The picture we get here is of Orpah going out and Ruth and Naomi embracing and just tears pouring all over the place and they are clinging to each other because literally they're the only two people in the world that they have. They have each other and they're going to walk down this road going back to Judah and they're not going to be alone because they're going to be able to walk with each other. And so what is happening here? This is a grim situation and does not look good. And so there's a couple of things that I think are important to point out as to what we should understand about the events of this passage. First is that God does not often explain the why issues of life. Often the why question is the biggest question that we have. I can see what's happening around, but I want to know why this is happening. And God is silent because God often does not answer the why question because that is for him to know and not for us to know. Because what is it for us to do as we walk this path of life and have much struggle? It is a walk of faith. Because we are to trust the Lord, we are to trust in his goodness, and we are to trust what he has given us today, and keep going today, and by faith believe that the Lord is good, which is the next thing. God often does not explain the why, but second, God is not cruel, God is not wicked, God is not against us, he is for us. Merciful is the Lord, and he will not press us beyond what we can bear. Instead, is the third thing that God will comfort us. He often does not explain the why. He is not cruel, but he is a great comforter. He comforts us first by his word, his precious promises in scripture. And so much of what Naomi speaks about comes from the Bible. And so if you are in a place of great sorrow and sadness and hurt right now, and you are not sure what to do with your life, do not go to the the promises of people or the encouragement of people. The greatest encouragement that you will ever find will come from this book, from the words of the Lord. And if it has been a long time since you've opened your Bible and it has remained shut and dusty on your shelf and your heart struggles greatly, the first thing that will comfort you is the reading of the word of the Lord. God will speak to your heart, in this way. But the second way in which the Lord will comfort us and the way in which he is working his comfort in the life of Naomi is through other people. We work to comfort each other by the work of the Lord. And so it was apparently too great of a struggle for Naomi to to walk this road alone. And so he brings to her her daughter-in-law and they cling to each other and they walk this road together. And we all know how much easier it is to go through hardship when we have someone else with us, someone that we can call when we're struggling, when we're deep and we're low and someone that we can cry with, someone that we can pray with. We need other people in our lives, other Christian people that will remind us of the goodness of the Lord and will help us to walk this walk of faith. And this is not unusual. We see it all throughout the Bible. And you see it with Moses and Aaron. Said, I-, I can't do this by myself, okay? I'm gonna bring your brother, and your brother's gonna work with you. and Together, you guys are gonna do this thing. And it's all over the New Testament. When Jesus sent the disciples out to bear witness of his name, he did not send them alone He sent them in pairs so that they might support each other, pray for each other, encourage each other. This is, in many ways, the foundation of marriage, what it is for two people to walk this life together. When Paul went out on his missionary journeys, he went with Barnabas or he went with some other helper, that there might be two together helping each other. It has always been this way for me. My wife is by far my greatest encourager. Walking this life together with her, I don't know how I would have gotten through so many things without being with her. If you are alone, the Lord will bring someone else to your side. The Lord will always bring another person by your side in the time of need, and that is part of what is happening here this morning in this building. This is called the local church. And this is a big part of what the local church is about. It's not about you just coming here, sitting, hearing something about God, increasing your personal devotion and walking out of this building. A big part of what we're doing here this morning is us together. Walking after the Lord and encouraging each other in faith and strengthening each other and praying for each other and comforting each other. That's specifically what I want to focus in on this morning. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn. keep your finger in Ruth, but turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. It's a beautiful passage on comfort and the way in which God comforts us in our struggles. One of these great names of God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and I'm gonna read through verse 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God verse 5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too we if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation and if we are comforted it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer our hope for you is unshaken For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So, a lot of back and forth there. But what is happening is people that are going through great struggle, the first source of comfort to them is God. That God Himself comforts our souls in struggle and in times of hardship we go to him first and when we go to him he will minister to our hearts in a way that comforts us this is a work of God's spirit in our hearts that though we cannot explain it particularly to another person we know that because of the love of God his spirit comes and comforts us reminds us of the promises of God in scripture and encourages us that by faith we must keep going and the Lord will work out his plan plan but then the beautiful thing that happens in this passage is it says that uh, let's see uh, verse 4 who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted so we then become ministers of comfort and strength to other people which means when I am in a place of strength I can then go and encourage someone else we share in the sufferings of Christ, but we will also be comforted by him, and then we can go and comfort others. And so the application here is absolutely vital, and, and we, just, we cannot miss it. When churches miss this application, something tremendous is lost in the fellowship of the church. And so I don't know where you are today. I know there are many of you out here that are going through great struggles like we're talking about here with Naomi. You are facing depression. You feel like God is against you. Whenever you're not around people, tears are pouring down your face. But there are also by the grace and the providence of God many people in this church that are in a good place, a strong place, a place where they are sure of the promises of the Lord and they have come through a hard place and God has comforted them. And I want to speak to you now, those of you that are in a good place, in a strong place. What is your role? If you are in a place of strength, it is your role to seek the brokenhearted. It is your role to hear them, to pray with them, to help them as you can, to love them, to minister the comfort of God to them in their time of need, to be an agent of the Holy Spirit, to minister to people what they need when they need it, to wait with them, to help them not lose hope, to draw them back from despair. It's a terrible thing if you are in a good and strong place, and you rise up from here, and you high-five your friends, and walk out the door, and you walk right past the person, that you can see the redness in their eyes, and you know what's going on in their life, and you don't take a moment to go over them and say, how are you doing today? How can I pray for you? And when the tears start flowing, that you can hold on to them and encourage them and remind them of the word of the Lord, remind them of the promises of God, draw them back from the edge, provide a need that they may have, and this is what should be happening in the context of the local church. And the Lord comforts you, and you go minister that comfort to other people, and you walk with them down the road of life. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I hope this is a reality in your life. If it's not, it needs to become a reality because it goes both ways. Perhaps the hurt is deep in your heart and you're not expressing it to anyone. None of us here are mind readers. If you don't express your struggle to anyone, no one will know that you're struggling. You've got to have an openness of heart to say something. But when people are speaking, we need to be listening and we need to comfort them with the comfort of the Lord. So we become ministers of the comfort of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we minister to people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are one of the ones that is speaking to a person that's brokenhearted and deeply struggling in their life, the first thing that we talk about is brother or sister, do you know Christ as your savior? because there is no hope without Christ and it may be that the very issue is great conviction of sin and unrest of heart because they have never come to Christ as their savior and it is the first step of comfort is knowing that you are loved by God because of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and you may have never realized that a a ministry of comforting someone can be an evangelistic ministry but we've got to learn to, to deal with people's souls and to diagnose what is going on by asking questions and listening and hearing. And if we know this person does not know Christ, we must seek to lead them to the salvation of Jesus. For the great promise that we stand on in times of struggle, Romans eight twenty eight says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those that love the Lord, But if a person has no love of God, we must lead them to Christ that they might see him as the good Savior that he is and in Christ find life. Well, that's a word on comfort, a very important word. I hope that you won't gloss over that. If what I just said is not happening in your life, you've got to consider deeply what needs to happen in order for that to be a part of your experience in the local church. We praise God for what the Lord's doing in this church and the way that people genuinely and earnestly care for each other and the way that they stay afterwards and talk to each other, the way that they invite each other into their homes, the way they're willing to forgive each other. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but back to the story. The Lord ministers his comfort to these two widows through each other, and literally they walk down the road together towards Judah. But we have in verse 16, one of the great verses of the Bible I think this is the greatest statement of faithfulness and loyalty ever made. And so what happens is Ruth is tired of hearing Naomi say, I want you to leave. She's like, I'm not leaving, okay? I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And so what does she say? Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is a powerful statement of loyalty and faithfulness. It is a statement of undying devotion. It is a statement of faith in the Lord It is a statement of unshakable resolve that by the power of the Lord, she is able to carry out and does exactly what she resolves in her heart to do. And the application of this is extremely powerful. Again, this is a a note that we need to hear in our day and age. Why? Because we live in a incredibly faithless and disloyal generation. We live in a time where people are willing to turn on each other for any and no reason at all. They're willing to badmouth, talk about, and get rid of dear friends and family members if they can earn a few bucks from doing it or any other way that they can press themselves forward. Seldom do we give others the benefit of the doubt. Loyalty to family, loyalty to church seems to be a shattered thing in this day and age, and something great is lost when you lose faithfulness and loyalty. I believe very much. That a part of the salvation of Jesus Christ is both the creation or the restoration of faithfulness and loyalty. Let me say that one more time. I believe that a part of the salvation of Jesus Christ is the creation or the restoration of faithfulness and loyalty. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. One of the fruits of the Spirit, which means a work that God's Spirit does in our heart as we remain near the Lord to change us and to make us into a new person is one of those fruits that's often lost or or glossed over or left behind, and it's the fruit of faithfulness. God teaches us to be faithful people, and if we go back to two of those centers of what it means to have uh, community and faithfulness, it is marriage, if I mentioned that before. Part of that is faithfulness. A huge part of that is faithfulness. God teaches us how to not be self serving and selfish, but teaches us how to be faithful and loving and to stand with other people through struggles and through hardship. God, by His Spirit, teaches us to love others and to stand with them. God, by His Spirit, teaches us to keep our vows and promises. And God, by his spirit, teaches us to maintain unity partially through loyalty. I understand there are other grounds for unity, but we cannot have unity as a church or unity in a marriage or unity in friendships without loyalty and faithfulness. If we are turning against each other and behind each other's backs all the time, there will be no unity and there will be no peace. And so... The two centers of faithfulness and loyalty are marriage and the local church. I'm gonna talk about this for a bit here. I believe the two great centers of faithfulness and loyalty, first is marriage and second is the local church. Marriage created by God is a husband and wife coming together. And this passage from Ruth about loyalty and faithfulness was read at our wedding because for us it summarized what we are seeking to do together Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. We will be together until we die. We will worship the same God and we will walk through life together. It is a statement of undying devotion through every hardship until death. And when Christian couples are able, by the grace of God, to live this out in their marriage and in their life, what happens is that faithfulness and that devotion flows out of their marriage to their greater family, to their children, to their brothers, to their sisters, and it begins to change the tone of the greater family. And this then flows into the local church, because faithfulness and loyalty in the local church is so important. We have kinship and eternal fellowship together in Christ. There is no category for a Christian to walk the Christian life alone. The church is called the what of Christ? The body of Christ and each of us have different gifts and places to serve in this body and there is no part of the, part of the body being chopped off and isolated and set over there to the side by itself. No, the Lord designed for us to work together And part of us being together and living together in this body of the local church, the body of Christ, is faithfulness and loyalty to each other in Christ. And so I'm going to flesh this out a little bit to help you understand what I'm talking about. As part of this local church, your people will be my people, which means when you bring your friends in here, I'd like to meet them. When you bring your children here, I'd like to know them. I want to shake their hand and welcome them to this place because Your people are my people. We will live together in and out of each other's homes, opening each other's homes to hospitality, bringing people into our house, preparing meals for one another, caring for one another. We will bear each other's burdens and sufferings. We will seek to comfort one another with the comfort of Christ with which we have been comforted. Your friends will be my friends. We will love and forgive each other. We will not hold grudges against each other, but we will be kind towards each other. We will give each other the benefit of the doubt. We will celebrate the births of our children together. We will celebrate the marriage of our children together. We will pray at the bedsides of each other when we are sick We will pursue each other in times of sin and we will bring each other back from waywardness, seeking to hold on to each other. We will help each other in financial need. We will speak well of each other. We will put away gossip. We will rejoice with those that rejoice and we will weep with those that weep. We We will correct each other in love and respect for faithful are the wounds of a friend. As a local church, we will be faithful and loyal to each other in a faithless and disloyal world. And part of that will shine the light of the gospel because there's something different about the way that we treat each other because the way in which Jesus Christ is at work in our hearts. Then in the end, we will close the eyes of those who die and go to be with the Lord. Those that are faithful to death, we will worship at their funeral. We will commend their souls to the Lord Jesus until we meet again. And this is a part of what should be happening in the local church, a joyful fellowship of people that love each other. So the question is, will you go this far in the church? Will you go this far in your marriage? Will you take seriously the call of the Lord in these things? Would you ever say words so deep and passionate as Ruth is saying here? Would you commit yourself that far to another person or to another group of people? Do you pray for love at this deep level? It starts at home and it works its way out by God's power to transform all of us. Those of you that have been in this church for a while have begun to experience the work of the Lord in our midst and the joy of what it means to be connected to a group of people that care for each other. But we can always do better. We can always strive further. And as the church grows, we're going to have to keep pressing into this and seeking one another on behalf of the Lord. Well, in verses 19 through 21, Naomi returns to Bethlehem. Is that you, they say? Is that you, Naomi? It's been 10 years, at least, since we've seen you. And she says, no, it's not Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. That was what her name meant. And she says, "I, I went out from you full, but I'm coming back to you empty. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter or bitterness of soul. But the way in which she addresses the people, again, is going to pick up on a theme that's going to carry into weeks to come. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. stop for a moment. The Almighty, that's another name of the Lord, a powerful name of the Lord. It's translated El Shaddai. Some of you have have heard that, that name translation for the Lord. It's often brought to bear in times of great strength. It was used by the Lord to refer to himself uh, with Moses just before he was gonna bring all the people out of Egypt. He was all the almighty God who was gonna deliver his people. But here, Naomi refers to the almighty God to reference the sovereignty of God and that she still believes in the sovereignty of God, that God is good, he is the almighty, he is inscrutable. I cannot understand what he is doing, but I submit myself to his ways The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. So we're going to keep revisiting this theme because it is a theme throughout the book, but I want to close with this. What is God doing here? I want to give us a little glimpse of what the Lord is doing in this story. And so this is funny. This is the second time we've turned to this unusual passage in just a number of weeks. But Matthew chapter 1, which is a genealogy, and many of us, genealogy, slip right to the next page. I understand that genealogies are difficult, but genealogies talk about the flow of history and what God is doing, and that the work of the Lord is not just an individual work, but it is a great tapestry, and your life is like one thread of that tapestry, and a tapestry is many threads woven together to create an overall picture, usually a story of a picture. And so the thread of Ruth and Naomi's life is an important thread in the work of the Lord. and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So it's going to turn out, spoiler alert, that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David and in the lineage of Christ, brought from a foreign land, a widowed, broken woman, brought right into the center in the midst of what God is doing in the world, not only in her time, but throughout all history. And so I encourage you this morning... You do not know the end of what God is working. He is working. He is always working. And we do not know the end of where it is going. Let the why question go and walk in faith this week. Believe the promises of God. Hear the comforts of God's people through your struggle. Hear the wisdom that they bring to you. Let us pray for each other. Believe the Lord. Worship the Lord. Do not lose hope. Be faithful and loyal. Trust in the goodness of God. Be comforted and comfort others. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is a great encouragement to me, and I pray that it would be a great encouragement to others, especially for those that are walking through bitter and hard times. I pray, God, for them now that you would remind them of your promises. If there is anyone here that is going through a great time of struggle and does not know you as Savior, I pray, God, that today they would confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, put their faith in Christ. They would lay down the bitterness and anger of their heart and be forgiven in Christ that they might have eternal life. I pray, God, that we would minister the comfort of the Holy Spirit to each other well. I pray that we would not be too busy, that we would not be too self-absorbed or selfish to care about and see the people that are around us, I pray help us as a church to love each other well. Help us to be faithful to our husband, faithful to our wife, faithful in our marriages, and that we might bring that faithfulness into this church and that we might love each other as Christ Jesus would have us to. Help us, Lord God, in the many struggles of our time to keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.